It happened a long time ago, and Jonathan didn't really think about it anymore. It was over, as far as he was concerned. High school stuff. I was a cello player. Every high school has the uh, nerdy, soft kid who brings his cello to class, and that would have been me. Every high school also has bullies, and there was one guy who picked on Jonathan. Jonathan remembers him as a glad-hander, somebody with lots of friends. And also... A jock. He hung out in the weight room. He squatted something over 500 pounds when he was in high school. (laughs) And you actually know the number? I believe it was 510 pounds, a number that I remember almost 30 years later. Because everybody knew the number. Because everybody knew this. I remember him, but I would be very surprised if he remembered me. He was the sort of person who would, you know, walk across the street to be unpleasant to somebody. Or in my most notable instance, I was walking down the hill, the hall to history class, and he hip-checked me. I was carrying my cello. I went sailing down the stairs with my cello. You'd be surprised how many times a cello in this case can bounce. It was a lot of money in repairs. He was laughing about it to his friends. I suspect he forgot about it five minutes later. I didn't. And so who was he? Who was this guy? That guy was Jack Abramoff. Jack Abramoff. Remember him? Big-time lobbyist. Played guilty to multiple criminal felonies, now in prison. One of the poster boys in our congressional corruption scandals. Jack Abramoff. It's, it's just beautiful. It's, it's more than I could have wished for. Well, in a certain sense, be, like thanks to you know, Justice Department prosecutors, finally someone gets revenge on him. It's sort of sweet, isn't it? And to realize that it's the same person was sort of strange. It's like finding out years later that the uh, person that punched you really hard in elementary school and made you cry ended up being the heavyweight champion of the world. Jonathan says that he had this feeling of, I knew it, I knew that guy was bad. And yes, it is petty to feel vindicated about that feeling so many years later. And yes, there is no dignity to that feeling. But there you have it. Who wouldn't feel satisfied that he was getting his comeuppance? This is so typical. We think the past is over. We're not thinking about the past. We're having no feelings about the past at all. And then a name pops up from years before, and suddenly we realize our old feelings are just sitting there, dormant, intact, recognizable, ready to be revived, like cavemen thawed from frozen Arctic ices, as you know, that often happens. Jonathan Gold went on to become a newspaper writer, the restaurant critic for the LA Weekly. He won a Pulitzer Prize this year, and he's going to his 30th high school reunion this weekend. When we tried to reach Jack Abramoff for a comment, his spokesman, Harry Cohen, sent us this statement. This story is not true. Mr. Abramoff does not know Mr. Gold, and he has no idea why Mr. Gold would fabricate such a story. There is no point in commenting further on something that never happened. Gold says he stands by his story. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. Today on our program, it's never over. Stories of stuff that will not end. Act one of our show today... Who takes the class out of class reunion? 
Mr. John Ronson demonstrates what can possibly happen when you have a keen sense of injustice that will not end. Act two, life without Leanne. Larry Doyle and a love that will not end. Act three, deal of a lifetime, a real estate transaction that will not end. Act four, one word, timing, a joke that will not go away. And what can happen when you hold on to a joke for years before you can find a conversation where you can say that joke out loud? Stay with us. Act one, who takes the class out of class reunion? Well, John Ronson has been on our show a number of times. He's written several books in England where he lives. He's on television doing these funny and also rather revealing documentary stories on Channel 4. And you might think that with all that success, he'd be feeling pretty good about things. Well, you'd be wrong. I wake up in the middle of the night. I find I'm still angry with the boys who threw me into Rothpart Lake in Cardiff in the summer of 1983 when I was 16. I log on to Friends Reunited. I find one of them and email to inform him that I am now a best-selling author. He emails me back. He says that the reason why they did it was because there was a pain in the ass. He says the tenor of my email leads him to suspect that I haven't changed and that throwing me in the lake again today would be an appropriate response. I email him back to say I earn more money than he does. He hasn't yet emailed me back. Touché. I told my friend Graham Linehan about the time I was thrown in the lake and it turns out he's got a story just like mine. Graham wrote Father Ted, which is Britain's biggest comedy show for ten years. Graham's a big success, but he says he can't stop dwelling on a few weeks he spent in France one summer, twenty years ago, with a boy called Christophe. He was my French correspondent. Exchange student? Yeah, yeah. So I went to his place for two weeks, got to know him, and then just that gradual thing, just realised after a couple of days... That he didn't like me at all. <laughs> How did you first spot Well, it? he was talking to his parents and he was saying, even though I couldn't understand French, he's always saying, quoi, quoi, because that, I was like a f- Irish Manuel. I was basically walking around going, quoi, I, I, every time anyone said it. was the only word I could understand. So I could sense he didn't really like me. And he was too mature for me. So rather than placing me with, say, a nerd who loves Dungeons and Dragons, who I'd still be friends with now if I'd met him. <laughs> they placed me with a bloke who got a motorcycle for his birthday. And you began to get the sense that he, he didn't like you. Yeah, no, he didn't. You were constantly the subject of jokes. And I had a terrible time, really miserable. And he was a horrible bully and his friends all aged me. And I nearly had a fight with one of his friends in his school. And and then he was going to come over to Ireland. So I just thought, well, he'll be on my home ground. I'll have a bit of control. It won't be so bad this time, you know. So we'll see what happens next. <laughs> so he came to Ireland. And he, I, he just had complete control over my life in Ireland as well. He was immediately friends with all the cool kids in my school. And he was just horrible. He beat me up in a swimming pool with his friend once. It was just a, a complete nightmare. This odd hell that childhood is, where you can be going through something in very close proximity to your parents and they still can't help you. You still can't really tell anyone about it. It's obsessed me, you know, not just him, but generally that problem of childhood. 
So you decided to murder him? <laughs> Not that I would murder him, but if I chose to murder him, <laughs> it would be the perfect murder. Because every murder needs uh, motive, means and opportunity, isn't that it? Yeah. But it needs motive. Mm. Now, if someone came... Magritte or whoever, what was the name of that? Maigret. Maigret. Yeah, was that the name of the detective, the French detective? If he came and found Christophe dead at his front door with a big butcher's knife through his heart, he wouldn't have a clue, because I'm back in England, you know, or Ireland. I just got on the plane, I went straight to his house, I rang his doorbell, he opened the door. There's a few flaws, I realise, in this, but anyway. Like if someone else opened the door. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And how do I recognise him and all this sort of thing. But he opens the door. I mean, now that he's grown up. Exactly. It doesn't really stand up, you know. (laughs) But anyway, I stab him in the heart, he dies, I get back in the taxi, which I've asked to wait a few doors away. (laughs) I go to the airport, I go back home, and then Maigret comes around, and where's the motive? There's absolutely no motive. He's just found someone killed in the middle of the afternoon and everyone loved him because he's probably turned into a nice person. And and because he beat you up, what, 25 years ago? Well, yeah, I have to say that this fantasy was particularly strong before I got successful. As soon as Father Ted took off, (laughs) I kind of dropped it. The worst thing about it, though, is that he'll never know that all these things happened, but my... Uh, he'll never know you wrote Father Ted. Yeah, yeah. Maybe instead of killing him, I should just learn how to say, I wrote Father Ted. <laughs> Get French. on a plane, go over, ring the doorbell. He comes to the door. Je crie Father Ted! <laughs> run away. <laughs> To be honest with you, in the end, it's a mugs game, isn't it? It's like answering critics, which I've done once or twice very stupidly. You can't, as I think Oscar Wilde said, roll around in the mud with them. And you can't roll around in the mud with your bullies, you know? You can't let them know that you still have these things. But it was a real problem for me. and My sense of injustice was so keen that I just couldn't sleep sometimes. But, you know, I've been invited to the uh, school reunion... Ah. And they'll be there, the boys who threw me into Rothbart Lake. I'd bring a knife. <laughs> I've got a better idea than that. <laughs> They've asked me to donate something for the raffle. Yeah. So I'm going to put together a package called My Fantastic Life. <laughs> and in the package will be my two best-selling books. Yeah. <laughs> a note saying, Dear John, sorry I missed you. Hopefully we'll meet up soon. Best Nick Hornby. <laughs> And a photograph of me with my arm around Zoe Ball. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Well, the Nick Hornby thing isn't great. No, that's that's the best I've got, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, can, I can do no better. My six-year-old son says to me, Were you thrown in a lake? Yes, I say, I was thrown in a lake when I was 16. Why? he asks. Because I was fat, I say. And there's two lessons to be learnt from this. Don't be a bully and don't be fat. Will you show me what it looks like? He asks. Me being fat or me being thrown in a lake? Both, he says. I puff up my cheeks, waddle comically around, fall over and say, splash. Will you do it again in slow motion? He says. So I do. 
This time I add some dialogue. Please don't throw me in the lake. No! Splash! Will you sound more scared, says Joel, and put a cushion under your shirt? So I do. Please, I shout, waddling grotesquely. I might drown. Please, no, no. You were so fat, says my son. I spent a while putting together the package for the raffle, My Fantastic Life, but I couldn't decide what to include. Should I add a copy of my bank statement, or would that be taking it too far? So I dumped the idea, and instead I brought along Simon, my producer. Yeah, this is the spot where it happened. This is exactly where. We were walking down here. Nobody said anything. They just all at once picked me up and threw me in. Which leads me to suspect that it was pre-planned. And then we all went back to one of their houses and watched Top of the Pops. Should we go? It's just, it's just up there. Well, I'm just wondering why six people that you could go and sit in the room and watch Top of the Pops with afterwards would want to conspire to throw you in the lake. I mean, what are you saying? I'm not saying anything. I'm just asking why you think that they decided to throw you in the lake. I don't like the tone of your question. Shall I rephrase it in a different way? I'll, yeah, I'll, OK, I'll, rephrase I'll, it. Um, why do you think that they, they threw you in the lake? What, what had happened? What went wrong? You're not rephrasing it. You're just putting a different tone on. You're putting some Clarena tone on to it. It's not the same bloody question. I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you... No, there was no reason at all. That's my answer. So six of your friends from school, for no reason at all, decided to throw you in the lake. Are you trying to rile me? I'm not trying to rile you. I'm just trying to find out what happened. I told you they picked me up and threw me in the lake. Yeah. That's the action... What's the reasoning behind it? I don't know, I'm the one who was thrown in the lake. I wasn't the one who planned it. So basically you're saying it's an, an inexplicable act and it's, it happened for no real reason at all. Well, it might be because I was fat. Later I tell Simon that I can't help thinking that had he been there, he would have thrown me in the lake. And Simon says if I think that about him, then I don't know him very well. It was with trepidation that I approached the back room of the Discovery Pub on Lakeside Drive for the reunion of the Cardiff High School class of 1985. I'd had a mental picture of a room full of thugs just jumping on me the minute I walked in, but instead I bumped into Sarah Thomas, who'd been, without any doubt, Cardiff High's most attractive enigma from the age of 14 upwards. How are you? Very well. Years. I'm very well, Ronson. Nervous? Stressed. I'm a lawyer, I shouldn't be stressed, but I am. Does it feel like the last 20 years of your life just haven't happened? Oh, they have. I've got wrinkles to show. No, you haven't. <laughs> you look better. Yeah, I aged well. Why were you nervous? The people I was going to see. Mm. And I hoped I was going to see you. That was a big thing. So, you see, it wasn't all bad, because I really wanted to see you again. John, John Audrey. Jonathan Audrey. What's it called? Hi, Hello, sweetie. That was Jonathan Audrey. I remember nothing about me except his name. Yeah. But he hasn't changed. No, he hasn't. No. No. Still cheeky. 
Something unexpected happens at the reunion. I have a lovely time. What I don't remember, it turns out, are the good times. Really? I keep saying, we did that. It's bizarre you don't remember that, people keep replying. It's as if I've scrubbed from my memory anything that contradicts my image of school as the worst days of my life. Do you think I've given myself sort of false memories? Yeah, I think you have. You think things aren't, weren't as bad? They weren't as bad. You've never talked about my house, and I think you had a nice time at my house. Yeah, I did. Very much so. And then Di Lewis, the man I thought had thrown me in the lake, comes over. He says, I've got it all wrong. Very wrong. Do you remember it as a good time? I remember it as a very good time at school. What do you remember of the day of the lake incident? Just good time, you know. But we all went down to the lake, and what we all jumped in together. Yeah. That's how you remember it. Do you? No, I remember being picked up and thrown. Is that really how you remember it? Do you remember you anyone I'm... else going in the lake? No. Just you? Yeah. Wrong. What, did we all go in the lake? Everyone. What, everyone, like who? Geraint. Dick. Paul Morris? Yeah. What, we all jumped in in a kind of joyous, youthful frenzy? I would say so. What do you remember of being in the lake? It was really disgusting. But, you know, it washed off. Was there any pushing going on at all? Did we all jump in of our own free will? I don't think there's any pushing. Do you really think there was pushing? John, really, really The, the way I remember it is that we were all walking along and then... Because obviously this is a really big thing in your life. No, it's not. No, it is. It obviously is. Go on, tell me. And then some look passed between you and you picked me up and just threw me in. How could I pick you up? You were massive. <laughs> There's no way. John, come on. Well, maybe, but... You could have picked me up. So when you remember... Uh, uh, when, pregnant, silence, silence. When you remember our time together, what do you remember? I remember it as, as being really good. I remember you, John Morris, Geraint, Dick, as a really good time. No other thoughts. Do you look back on it as being, like, the happiest days of your life, which is what people say about their school days? Yeah, no, I do, yeah. Really the happiest you, days of your life? Apart from my kids being born... Yeah. You? No, for me it was like the saddest days of my life. Oh, that's really bad. That's really bad. Well, I've had, you know, very happy days since then. Of course. <laughs> you, you were one of the group, you know. There was never any bullying. If you say differently, I think you're fantasizing. You really are. Fantasizing. Absolutely. I mean, I'm beginning to wonder whether I should be trusting my memory. Do I get a hug, do I? Yeah. Right, let's go. Okay. Don't, don't stress about it, you know? There was nothing. I was in the lake too. And so I go back inside to the disco, amazed at the fragility of memory and startled that I've spent so long being angry about something that probably never happened. And Simon, my producer, stays outside. All right, well, John's not here now, so I can tell you the truth. I remember the evening vividly. I threw him in the lake. I was 15 because he was being an arse. And then somebody else threw his scarf in afterwards, and he had to climb back in and get it. The humiliation of that. I'm not entirely surprised he's still having sleepless nights. But why did you do it? Because I was 15 and because he was an arse. That's all the reason I can remember. In a very similar, though more sort of pubescent way, that he's still an arse. Why do you think Di is saying that you all went in the lake? Is he falsely remembering it, do you think? Because you seem to remember it very clearly. I do remember that Di was there, but I think Di's memories have been clouded over the years. 
why it seems to have festered over the past 20-something years for John, I have no idea. But it obviously has. You want the truth on this? I think he was somebody who desperately wanted to be popular. And because of that desperation, he wasn't. That was Paul. And I'd just like to point out, I make more money than him. John Ronson, he's the author of the book The Men Who Stare at Goats and other books. A version of this story originally appeared on a radio show that he's been hosting lately for BBC Radio 4 called John Ronson On. Life without Leanne. Our program today is about things that never seem to end. And I think there are certain feelings that at some point or another, all of us have felt and been unable to shake. These feelings stick around for months. They stick around for years. And there are some people in that situation who find it useful to talk about it. Good evening and welcome to Life Without Leanne. I'm Larry and this is Day 683. That's nearly 98 weeks since Leanne and I broke up. Funny each time I fall in love, it's always you. We're going to start out, as always, with our Leanne Watcher of the Week. My kudos go out to Mike of Evanston, Illinois, who called in with this eloquent report on a brief encounter he had with Leanne on April 28th. Hey, Larry, I love the show. Uh, listen, I ran into Leanne last week, um... She lost some weight, but she's she's still beautiful, you know. Uh, she said she's been exercising, you know, taking classes, doing this, doing that. Um, but it appeared to me that she was struggling to um, to fill some void. Your name didn't come up, but um, but you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't so much what she said as as what she didn't say. Thanks, Mike. I think we all know what she was trying to say. I wish it all could be such good news, but unfortunately, Operation Terrible Mistake has not been the success that we anticipated, and I'm afraid we may have to rethink our strategy. As you may recall from our April 20th program, the objectives of Operation Terrible Mistake were to, one, apply societal pressure, two, foster emotional uncertainty, Three, precipitate reevaluation, and ideally, four, achieve reconciliation. When I brought up this plan, I suggested the following conversation starter, you know, when you would run into Leanne on the street or something. I, I, I suggested that you say something like, Leanne, I was so sorry to hear about you and Larry. You make such a wonderful couple, so I don't mind telling you I think you are making a terrible mistake. This is my own personal opinion on the matter. Now, unfortunately, a number of well-meaning individuals took this suggestion rather more literally than I intended and uh, repeated it verbatim to Leanne. And some of it sounds like you were practicing it and uh, it created an effect other than the one I desired. Uh, 
I've now received word through an intermediary that Leanne requests that I, quote, call off the zombies, unquote. We will honor her wishes, as always, though I must emphasize I cannot be held responsible for the behavior of individuals acting on their own initiative. I've got the uh, minutes to the most recent Leanne Anonymous meeting, which I'll read to you now. Um, it was our first meeting at Gatsby's. Uh, the bartender, Mark, graciously accommodated us by closing off the back room and supplying extra folding chairs. Um, meeting started out, we ordered the first round, and uh, it proceeded immediately to old business, the continuing debate on Leanne's eyes and whether they are turbulent sea green or sand-flecked moon blue. They are, by the way, sand-flecked moon blue. And conversation turned naturally to the rest of Leanne, her quirky, perky nose, her funny, sunny smile, the perfect curve of her neck, her soft shoulders, and so on, until petty jealousies precluded further discussion. Soon thereafter, we took a, a break to order some more refreshments, and then it was time to welcome new members. Um, this stubby and not particularly attractive man, uh, who had been spotted with Leanne as recently as mid-January, uh, stood up, and uh, he said, uh, My name is Harry, and I love Leanne. Harry then related his long, sad tale, the details of which uh, we are all too familiar with. Uh, he ended with that same old refrain, She met this guy, she says she's deliriously happy. Uh, that prompted Gunther, you know, who really doesn't speak very often, to speak up. She's deliriously happy, eh, he said, staring into his beer. That guy is doomed. Those of who could still laugh about it did, and uh, we voted to adjourn. We all know what that music means. It's time for this week's Leanne Challenge. Leanne is what she eats, but how well do you know what she eats? Everybody knows Leanne likes horseradish on her hamburgers, but what kind of horseradish? Okay, here's a hint. She received a case of it last Christmas. The answer to last week's challenge was, you guessed it, from left to right. I know a lot of people thought there was a trick to that question, but uh, there wasn't. Stop, whoa, yes, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. Wait, 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 Mr. Postman. Uh, it's time for the mail. Uh, the mail ran heavy this week with entries to the Candid Leanne photo contest. Uh, I, I think I need to remind everybody that the rules clearly state that Leanne must be the only person shown in the photograph. Um, in case any of you want to resubmit, I'm going to extend the deadline for two weeks until May 23rd. Uh, please remember entries can't be returned. Oh, okay, first letter, one of our far-flung correspondents, Reggie of Buffalo Grove, Illinois, who writes in, and, and I think this is very interesting. We've gotten a number of letters like this. Uh, he writes, Larry, isn't it time you got on with your life? It's been nearly two years since Leanne broke up with you. Uh, actually, we're, we're a couple weeks short of that, but anyway, he says it's been actually two years since Leanne broke up with you, and I hate to tell you, pal, but it's over. O-V-E-R. But listen, he, he says, there are a lot of other chicks in the sea, my friend, and they're yours for the picking. Go for it. Um, well, Reggie, I don't know quite how to answer that. It's it's difficult to determine exactly what it is you're driving at. Uh, I mean, I'm afraid I don't share your bitter perspective, and uh, I don't really get all of your playground aphorisms. Uh, but uh, please understand when I suggest this. You know nothing about love. But thanks for the letter, Reg. Your Larry Loves Leanne t-shirt is in the mail. That's it for Life Without Leanne this week, and let's hope it's the last week. I'm Larry, and I love Leanne. Whenever it's early twilight Larry Doyle wishes it known that he now loves Becky, 
They have three kids together. Funny it's not a star I see It's always you Coming up, an inhuman situation made human through sheer force of politeness. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life, Amira Glass. Each week on a program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, it's never over. Stories of feelings and situations that will not end, no matter what it is that we want. Act three, deal of a lifetime. The beauty of most business transactions is that they are cut and dried. No emotion. You do this, I do that. Here's the money. Goodbye. Especially goodbye. They are easy that way. Sarah Koenig tells this story of a business transaction that everyone involved thought was going to be quick and simple that has turned out to actually be kind of never-ending. It was a real estate deal in Sag Harbor, New York. Sag Harbor uh, is one of these places. It used to be a fishing village, but now it's an artsy tourist town in the Hamptons. Super expensive. Here's Sarah. My stepsister Rue wanted a house in Sag Harbor, New York, badly, and she couldn't really afford it. Then one day she found out about a lovely house on Main Street, listed for two prices. The more expensive listing included a house, a shed, and a little garden. The cheaper listing included a house, a shed, a little garden, and Ned. Well, the way I identify Ned is my man. (laughs) People laugh at this, but he really is mine. He's the man that came with the house. The deal was this. Rue moved into her dream house at a $110,000 discount. The catch was Ned, an elderly, sick man who sold the house cheap on one condition, that he never have to move out. Rue lives in the upstairs apartment. Ned lives in the more spacious downstairs, where he will stay until he dies. While Ned is working in his little downtown shop, which sells classical music CDs, Rue gives us a tour. We're coming into um, Ned's portion of the house, which is um, where he's lived for, I think, 20, maybe 20 years, I'm not sure. Um, And which is good for him, too, because, you know, he's older, it's all on street level, he doesn't have to climb any stairs. And also, he's lost a lot of his sight, which is um, one reason why he really didn't want to leave this house. Unlike the mansions across the street, this house isn't big or fancy. It was built perhaps a hundred years ago for the workers in the local watch case factory. Called, um, when she bought it, Rue was 36 and single. Um, 
The idea that she could inhabit only two rooms of her new house didn't seem problematic. What she did not foresee was that in the space of a year, she would acquire a puppy, a husband, and a baby. She tries to focus on the deal's advantages. The cramped quarters have taught her to resolve fights with her husband rather than flee them, she says. Still, she can't deny that the population boom in her apartment has made Ned's downstairs look especially attractive. And this is the living room. Is this where you would have the bedroom if you were down here? Would you use that as the master bedroom? Um, well, actually, I think I would change the whole back of the house <laughs> if I were down here. As, as you might guess, I've had a few imaginings of what I'd like to do with a space down here, but um, not too many. I don't like to get carried away with myself, you know, prematurely. Um, these are all terrible things to think of. Why are they terrible things to think of? Well, I don't know. I mean, there's just a kind of a... <laughs> there's a... Um, there's this vulture-like aspect of it when you start talking about what you'd like to do. I mean, there's no getting around that. Um, when I, how can I talk about what I'd like to do? I'd never get to do it until he's moved on from this world. Well, we are now standing in the second parlor of this house on Main Street in Sag Harbor. And um, I've lived here since uh, eight, uh, 1985. Um, I sold it uh, to Rue, I think, in 95. And uh, I never expected to be alive this long. <laughs> Poor Rue. <laughs> to Ned, who is 78, selling his house from under himself was an ingenious way to stay in a place he considers home. A pianist who made his living as an editor, Ned has spent his life getting money and then spending it all. By the time he put his house on the market, he was sick and broke. He didn't have the will to move. The Main Street house is the only one he has ever owned. It's crammed with antiques and oriental rugs and reminders of his elegant New Orleans upbringing. A large romantic portrait of him from 1951 hangs in the parlor. In the kitchen is a framed photograph of Stillwood, his grandmother's plantation house. And the little silver coffee set, this set right here, a little a coffee pot, a cream pitcher, and a sugar pitcher, and a tray. My mother said was from the Civil War down in New Orleans, and it's been buried in the garden to keep General Butler, Spoon Butler, they called him, um, to keep it from him. And I said, oh, mother, on the bottom of each piece in here, it says 1893. <laughs> and she said, well, that's a stock number. <laughs> I mean, reality, my mother was not to be, to be moved by this. And when I took the tray to uh, a silversmith in New York to have it redone. He said, has this tray ever been buried in the ground? Because there are all sorts of minerals in it that uh, you only find in the ground. And I said, I told him the story. He said, well, I bet your mother was right. Besides the house and its occasional ailments, a leaky skylight, an overflowing garbage can, what unites these two households is the anticipation of Ned's death. Back when they first negotiated the deal, nobody thought he would still be alive today. He had had a heart attack, and he had had a, a history of heart disease. I don't know how long a history. He had had bypass surgery, 
And um, then right after the closing, two weeks after the closing, he had another heart attack, and I talked to him from the hospital. And he sounded quite authentically sick, I have to say. <laughs> he did. And that was, that was six years ago. The trouble is, I all of a sudden began to get better and was, was going around full of energy, and um, I feel perfectly good most of the time. I mean, I wake up and I embrace the day, so to speak. Well, not the early day. <laughs> the contract that binds Ned and Rue has led them to live together separately. They don't consider each other family or even friends. They don't invite each other over for dinner or drop by each other's apartment for a chat. When they do talk, their conversation is almost exclusively about the house. Like considerate roommates, they try not to offend each other with their habits. I try to, to figure out when maybe nobody is upstairs, and that's when I play. But sometimes I've, I, I realize they are upstairs, but then I go ahead and play anyhow. <laughs> I'm sure it must bother them, but um, it would bother me. I've, I've played the piano ever since I was nine years old. And very, very sad by the fact that I can no longer read music because I've forgotten all those pieces that I learned all those years ago. But I now can sit down and simply play what comes out. And oddly enough, sometimes what comes out is very, very nice. <laughs> it's always very sad. And, um,. Oh, there have been moving evenings here, let me tell you. <laughs> not, a, not a dry handkerchief in the house. <laughs> in fact, Rue likes his playing. She's never told him so, but she finds it soothing when the music drifts into her bedroom when she and the baby are taking a nap. And he has never told her that he finds her presence upstairs comforting. Still, there are complicated feelings on both sides. I do like Ned, and I do feel like... I feel kind of benevolent towards him, like I'm taking care of him sometimes. He just inspires that in people. And um, But then I'm not going to be terribly, terribly sorry when he dies. You know, I'm going to be sorry, but I'm also going to feel some relief. <laughs> And it's, 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 oh, it's very strange. Every time I ask him, how are you doing? Or, you know, take care. I always get this little twinge because <laughs> it's, there's just, there is a twinge. <laughs> a twinge of like, Oh, how how are things going? Or how are you doing? And and uh, and it's just this wicked twinge comes over me because I think that I, you know, a little bit like to hear not so great. Do you think in a, he's keyed in to this other conversation in your head? Well, I. As I said, Ned's no fool. I'm aware that um, 
that the other side can't be all that thrilled that I'm still there. Um, but she's been very nice to me. And I think I've been very nice to her, I think. Well, she, she obviously likes you. Well, I hope so, because I like her. Right. <laughs> but, but she's also waiting for your demise. Oh, I'm sure. Does it make you feel guilty that you got better? I don't think I feel guilty. Maybe I do. Um, I'm just sorry that, um, that that there's Rue sitting up there. She can't help but, but wait, <laughs> biting her fingernails probably. But um, it sounds heartless put, put this way. And uh, I guess it is. When one begins picking it apart this way, it sounds really quite awful. As, as though I'm, I'm, I'm just squelching the life of a young couple and now brand new life. A lot of people would say that Rue looks like the heartless one in this arrangement, that she, there she is waiting for a gentleman to die. Well, I don't think... That, that's why I think this kind of speculation is, um, is, is... There's a certain falseness about it that yes, these thoughts flicker across every mind, uh, mine as well as hers, I'm sure. Um, but we're civilized beings, and um, I did what I thought I had to do, and I also think that she did what she felt she maybe not had to do, but she did what she wanted to do. The only word. It's been very civilized, um, I think. Rue and I are polite to each other. We don't let our feelings carry us into uh, territory that is uncharted and really will, will always be uncharted. What territory is that? The territory that she resents the fact that I'm still alive and I resent the fact that she wants me to die. Better to be on the surface than than not because it's unanswerable and is territory that I'm unable to explore. And I don't think Rue is able to explore it to any benefit either. It's supposed to be that total honesty is uh, and examining every scrap of the brain, our emotions and whatnot is supposed to advance something. But it usually depresses rather than advances, I think, because of his upbringing, Ned comes to this position naturally. But it's remarkable to me that my stepsister, a 70s wild child still known to say things like, virtue is a load of crap, has come to understand the power of polite restraint. In private, of course, away from Ned, she is unapologetic about what lurks beneath their relationship. I don't feel so very guilty about it because I don't feel anything that anybody else wouldn't feel. I know how people are. I'm no worse than anybody. There's no person, I mean, you know, Mother Teresa could be living in this apartment if she were young, with a baby and a husband, and not have those thoughts, okay? I know that. I mean, it seems to me that people waste an awful lot of time having pretenses about what they're supposed to feel, when what they really feel is what they really feel. Why not just, you can't. You can't tell life to be something that it's not going to be, that it, that it isn't. You can't argue with it. 
I don't mind being like just a human being. That's that's fine. Both Rue and Ned moved into this house hoping it would be the last place where they'd ever unpack. Ned got his wish, but if he survives for more than another year, a strong possibility, Rue will have to move out. Her two small rooms will become too small once her baby starts to crawl. For now, though, Rue's proud that the five souls living under her roof are getting along so well. And when Ned finally does die, she says she'll be sad. Along with twinges of wickedness, it's a sadness she bought along with the house. Not period. <laughs> Sarah Canning is one of the producers of our program. It's been seven years since we first broadcast this story, and incredibly, despite everybody's predictions, both Ned and Rue are still living in the house. Ned's doing very well, running his music store. He recently recorded a CD of his piano music. Meanwhile, upstairs, Rue's son Emmett is now seven years old. Rue says things are mostly very friendly between her and Ned, and that she doesn't wish him dead too often. Just a love nest Cozy with charm Like a dove nest Down on a farm Act four, one word, timing. This is the story of a joke that would not die. Tammy Sager had just gotten this job that she really wanted. And she was in that position where she was working with people who she really, really respected and she wanted them to like her. And this job was something that she had never done before. It was to write a script for a television show, to write a situation comedy. And she had finished her first draft and they had this meeting to go through the draft with her and tell her what changes they wanted. And this is the very first time they were reviewing her work. And she tape recorded the meeting so she would get all of their comments, all of their notes, not lose anything. And they get to the end of going through the script and then everybody's still sitting around. They start making small talk and it's the two people who run this TV show and the comedian who is the star of the TV show, this guy Louis C.K., incredibly funny guy. In fact, they're all really funny. And somehow politics comes up and the three guys in the room are talking about it being funny and Tammy is just trying to think of something interesting to say. You know, we've all been in this situation at work or socially or wherever. She wants to say something funny and smart and time is passing. And she's getting a little anxious. I'm just scared that it's going to end on this note of them having this really sparkling political uh, debate and with funniness. And then like, all right, Tammy, you know, go home and write your episode. See you later. Right. And you won't get a chance to prove to them that you are one of them. And Yeah. Just listening to the recording of it, which you sent us, it's, it seems like you're, you're trying to get a word in uh, edgewise and yeah. maybe not always succeeding. Let, let's play a couple of that. And that's where we belong. Right. right. Or, that's what I think. And then it's all, the dream is over. Or God. you're about to go somewhere with that and uh, you don't really do that. Here's yeah. another one. Yeah. Maybe. You can just hear. Like, it's a person trying to get on a highway at the ramp and, like, that sort of like, can I merge? No? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so what happens? So, well, okay. So, 
to, to really get what happens next, you have to know that uh, four or five years ago, I came up with this joke while I was walking my dog about Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader, like four years ago, said that 9-11 wouldn't have happened if he had been elected president because he would have, I think, he would have done something to the cockpit doors as soon as he was elected that would have prevented it from happening. Right. They, right, right. His group, uh, Public Citizen, had been lobbying to actually strengthen the cockpit doors so nobody can bust into the cockpit doors, but, but nobody listened to them, basically. Exactly. Exactly. And so when he said that, I came up with a, a, a line about it, like while I was walking my dogs, but I don't do stand-up, and, uh, but it's a total stand-up line. And so I, I never actually said the line because it's sort of impossible to toss off in conversation. <laughs> and uh, so it just was there. It was just sitting there. So you have this four-year-old joke that really has nowhere to live. Right, and has never been said. Um, and, uh, and then Louie brings up Ralph Nader. I heard, I heard Nader <laughs> 2000 or which, whichever one. Uh, yeah, 2000. What he does is he basically yeah. talks about the fact that he voted for Nader and what people said to him about it. And, and, and while he's talking about this, what are you thinking? Oh, all I'm thinking is how can I bring up the cockpit door thing? That's really all I'm thinking. Can I bring this around to 9-11 so I can say this joke? <laughs> exactly. But in the meantime, they're talking about other stuff about Ralph Nader. And, uh, and then I'm sort of biting my tongue and then... Louis brings up the thing about the 9-11 and the cockpit doors. And all of a sudden, there's this organic opening for this line. No, it's like somebody said to Ralph Nader after 9-11, what if there had been you in the White House? Wouldn't, it, wouldn't even you say now that you, we wouldn't want Ralph Nader in the White House after 9-11? <laughs> and he said, sorry, but uh, my organization has been trying to get the uh, airlines to uh, bolt their doors yeah, he said 9-11 wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened if I was president. I'm thinking, just just wait, just wait. Let him do it. Let him do it. And then he's not quite getting it out. So I, I, I kind of like trying to help it along. Like, just like, <laughs> like just maybe it was that walking into a pitch. Like, Haha, come on, here we go, baby. Because, you know, if you can just get this out, if you, you, like, you, are sitting on, you are sitting on pure gold. You're sitting on this thing and finally... <sighs> Yeah, it's had four four years to hatch. And the federal government won't force them. If he'd been elected, he would have been too distracted by all the flying pigs. What? Come on! Come on! It's so sweet. And then they even riff on it for a little while, which is, like, the best thing that can happen. Like, uh, I think Aaron is, like, doing other sort of hell-freezing-over jokes and... And so for you, did you feel a sense of triumph or did you feel instantly a sense that, like, it doesn't count because you were using a joke that you had made up four years ago? I felt a total sense of triumph. Well, I mean, I felt like a 95% sense of triumph and then a 5% like, but it's a lie. And then like, whatever. (laughs) Like, yeah, so's makeup. Makeup is a lie. And so, and so, are you done? Are you in? Is that it? Like, that's it? You used that joke to kind of, like, get you over the, the hump, and now are, is it through? Um, I felt like I'm more in, yeah. I, I don't know that I'll ever feel like I'm in with anybody. But, no, I have felt like I'm more in. I have felt a marked difference. 
I mean, do you ever feel like you're totally in with anybody? Dude, I'm married to somebody who I feel like I'm constantly in a situation of having. I feel like I, it, she doesn't feel this way, but I totally feel like every day I have to prove myself anew. Really? Well, well, here's one more thing, though, that is kind of sucky about it, though, is by constantly checking in with what the other person's opinion of you is, you're not you're not just being with that person. Right. There's a level of removal there that is sad. Totally. That's that's totally my personality. For me, for me, I think that something went wrong when I was a kid where where I think that other people, they just accept that they're in. They accept that th- this other person likes them and they don't have to keep proving themselves. Whereas for me, it's entirely temporal. I'm constantly judging the whole thing moment by moment. Yeah. And, and it could always fall apart. For me, it never ends. I, I remember when I was a kid, and I, I think I was probably like four maybe. So my sister was nine and my brother was 14. And we were doing bits around the table. Like I remember them like acting stuff out that I didn't quite understand what was going on. And I remember going up and trying to imitate them and acting something out. And I remember only my mom laughing. And I remember even them being like, oh, she's just trying to make me feel better. And uh, and just knowing it wasn't a real laugh. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> it's just like. Tough room. <laughs> <laughs> and also like, I was the jerk too. Like, whatever, mom. I don't want your unconditional love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give me some of that. My father has actually said to me, doesn't my approval mean more because it is conditional <laughs> I, I once uh, was on stage that you know they asked for a volunteer and this guy put a blindfold on me and he danced me around the stage and all this stuff and at the end you know they take the blindfold off and uh they said how about applause for the volunteer and everybody in the audience clapped except for my father and afterwards i was like Hava, what what's up and he goes you didn't do anything you were a human prop what <laughs> Tammy Sager, she now writes for the NBC show 30 Rock. She says that um, having a storeroom of old jokes used and unused inside of her head, sometimes very great and useful, other times does not serve her so well. A uh, quick warning to listeners uh, in what she's about to say. The jokes that she is about to tell, they aren't explicit or anything, but they might not be appropriate for children. I was on a trip to Switzerland and I was with like 18 people. It was one of these walking tours and... You know, this hotel in Switzerland, somebody says, hey, the professional has a joke. And nobody knows me in this group. Like, we've been together two or three days. And, you know, the average age is like 60-something. And uh, I was about to tell my favorite child molester joke, which is, uh, did you hear about the Jewish pedophile? No. He's the one who says, hey, kids, easy on the candy. So in my head, I was like, oh, I can't tell the Jewish pedophile joke because, you know, I'm Jewish, so I can say that. But we're in Switzerland and there's already weirdness there. And anyway, so I was just like – but at the same time, I was like, well, this group is cool enough. So I tell this other child molester joke, which is um, the little boy and a child molester walking through the forest. And all of a sudden, like I can just feel the temperature of the table just go down like 10 degrees. And – and one woman goes, oh. And and then I'm like, no, I, I, I got to go through with it. I'm going to win them over. And uh, so I was like, it's literally a dark and stormy night. And the little boy says, I'm scared. And the child molester says, you're scared. I got to walk out of here by myself. 
and uh, total silence, like total horrible, horrible silence. And then the guy down at the end of the table, the one who says, hey, the professional has a joke. Now he goes, uh, what do you call a cow that doesn't give any milk? Uh, a milk dud. And like, we love you. Like hilarious joke. And uh, that was just – it's like a Dixie cup joke. But – Totally pandering because we were in Switzerland, so we were around a lot of cows. And here's my other problem with that joke. It's like nine words long, and he says milk in the question and the answer. I, yeah, I was thinking so, of that. Exactly. Like, that's a really poorly phrased joke. It's, 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 it's a, it's a low-level joke. Huge laughs, like compliments to him, and uh, I'm sitting stewing in the corner like whatever. So, like, a little bit mad even. um, But uh, my favorite joke, and and this is what I always say, like, when people are like, oh, you're you're in comedy, tell me a joke. And this always disappoints, always, but I still love it, is uh, what did the snail say on the turtle's back? Whee! They're just like, oh, that's that's what you do for a living? And then I want to be like, no, but you, you can't handle... You can't handle the truth. <laughs> you can't handle the Jewish pedophile. I started a joke, which started the whole world crying. But I didn't see that the joke was on me. Well, our program was produced today by Sarah Koenig and myself with Alex Winberg, Diane Cook, Jane Feltis, Lisa Pollock, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Sho Jiao Young, runs our website. Production help from Seth Lind and Bruce Wallace. Music help from Jessica Hopper. Special thanks today to Michael Beaumier. Our website, we can get our free weekly podcast. Go listen to our old shows for free, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is brought to you by Volkswagen. When you get into a Volkswagen, it gets into you. And by The Economist magazine, which tells not only what is happening around the world each week, but why. The Economist at newsstands and bookstores and at economist.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who does not understand why we did Act 4 today, no matter what I say. So basically you're saying... It's a, an inexplicable act, and it's it happened for no real reason at all. I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI, Public Radio International.